Hi, and welcome to the Writers' Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto, and today we'll be airing the second part of our interview with the founders and organizers behind the Dogfish Reading Series, a monthly literary event here in New Orleans. Up first, we have author Taylor Murrow. Take a listen. How are you doing today? Good. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Well, I'm glad you could make it. Uh, <laughs> so we're doing this series about the Dogfish Reading Series, as well as the people, the people involved with it. And I wanted to hear about how you kind of came upon the reading series and, you know, contributed to the creation. Sure. Um, well, the four of us who run it together, it's myself, Jessica Kinnison, Alex Jennings, and Kate Root. A few years ago, we actually had a writing group together. All of us write in different genres. Um, and Jessica and I, who did know each other before, we went to undergrad together at Loyola here in New Orleans. And while in undergrad, we actually were part of starting a reading series over there, which we found out is still operating, which is great. Uh, it's called 1718. But Jessica and I and a few other students from Loyola and Tulane kind of started this reading series over there. And when we left Loyola, it was like, well, we really loved having this community and we wish that we could somehow not necessarily replicate it, but do something like that for our own community. Jessica is definitely... She's the driver of the ship, and this was, you know, a project that she really wanted to do. I don't know many people who would want to invite 50, 60, 90, 100 strangers into <laughs> their home each month, but that's what she wanted to do, and it's really turned into this great community that I think has kind of outgrown even what we anticipated. Uh, we started, I guess it was in February of maybe twenty. 15? Yeah, I mean, I think we didn't really know what to expect. We didn't know who would show up. We didn't know if anyone would show up at <laughs> first. But, um, you know, we all kind of have our own role. Um, Kate has definitely been a huge part of that growth. She runs our social media channels, and she has such a great presence on there, which is wonderful. Um, but we've all kind of come together, and, you know, we looked at it like, how can we bring people that obviously we love and writers that we want to feature, but how can we get new voices in there as well? So yeah. that's, you know, why we kind of have the open mic and featured reader components of it. Um, I'm usually the one at the books table selling books, and Alex has been our wonderful MC for a long time, and Jessica is the hostess, so she's always greeting people and welcoming people into her home. It's different. It's different from any other kind of reading series that I've been a part of anyway. No, I agree. That's part of the reason why I like it and I'm enjoying kind of highlighting Gall is uh, you go to the series each month and it's different textures to it because different people are coming out. Uh, the readers that you're bringing on are really eclectic and kind of throughout different genres, modes, uh, mediums. It's really kind of an interesting place to be. Uh, do, do you have any favorite experiences from it so far? So I'm from here. I also went to NOCA mm -hmm. for creative writing, so that was a huge part of my development as a writer, and it's been wonderful to have been able to invite some of my mentors and some of my teachers from my time at NOCA to come read, so that's been great. Andy Young's reading was fantastic. She's a wonderful poet in town, so that's been wonderful. Carolyn Hembry, who was not actually one of my professors at NOCA, but she um, she did like guest teach there quite frequently, and I've always been a huge fan of her work. That's been wonderful. I mean, we've had a couple of really just stellar readings where we've had, you know, over 100 people show up, which we were just like totally blown away by. <laughs> uh, Tank 
from Tank and the Bangas was a hugely popular one. I mean, there's just been so many of them, really. It's been pretty remarkable. And I think what you were saying, how there's so many different styles, I think that kind of plays to the fact that we're just different writers. No, I can see that. It's kind of like Captain Planet. You're bringing everything (laughs) together, you know? We are a team of superhero literary <laughs> people, no, <laughs> sort I, of. I love it. I, yeah. I do love it. Tell me a little bit about your, your poetry. What's kind of your focus? What are you interested in? Growing up and throughout high school and college, it's changed so much. And while I was in college, I wrote this whole manuscript of poems that were based off of you know visual art. And eventually I worked at the New Orleans Museum of Art, which was a wonderful kind of marriage of those interests. Lately, I, I've, I don't know, I, I've been writing things a little bit more personal in a weird way. I mean, I guess all writing is very personal, despite whatever, um, you know, you may think. But what's been really nice about having Dogfish be a constant presence in my life as a writer is that, first of all, it motivates me to do it. It gets, it's so easy to just kind of, as much as I love reading, as much as I love writing, you know, I do have a full-time job where it doesn't involve reading or writing that sort of thing at all. And so it gets very easy to just kind of zone out at the end of the day and, you know, kind of not do anything. But being around this great group of writers and these people who are truly energized by it, and you kind of feel that in the room, too. It's like I'll hear somebody at the open mic, and I'm like, wow, that's such a great image. And then, you know, maybe I'll kind of stop and pull out my, you know, phone and take a quick note because it makes me think of a line. So it's it's been really nice to kind of have that as inspiration in my own work. I'm definitely the type of writer where I need to be reading or, you know, listening to other people read to kind of help me get into my groove. So, um, yeah, that's been a huge influence, definitely. If you could pick any person, living or dead, to come read at Dogfish, who would it be? Oh, my gosh. That is such a loaded question. (laughs) Yeah, so, man, alive or dead, I think C.D. Wright, uh, was a fantastic poet. I feel like the last, I don't know what it is about the last couple of years, it's just feels like we've lost so many wonderful people in yeah. all forms of art. Seamus Haney, who I think he's a lot of people maybe who don't even read poetry or might have been familiar with his translation of Beowulf, which mm-hmm. I know is really popular. Gosh, I don't know. I feel like there are so many who I would love to bring in. And I feel like he would Maybe you just want to have to throw in some of the classics like, you know, Sylvia Plath yeah. or, you know, Anne Sexton just to, I feel like they would really pack the house. <laughs> I think <laughs> to so. To come see Sylvia Plath back from the dead. Um, one night only. Yeah, one you know? night only. That's it. But, you know, what's kind of nice is that I feel like there's so many people that we have invited that, you know, kind of were on our pie in the sky list. I know before, I think it might have been before she lived here full time. But Jamie Attenberg, who's a wonderful fiction writer, I have loved her work for a while. And, you know, a couple of years ago, we were kind of talking like we would be great to bring her in. And, you know, now she lives here and there's mutual friends because it's New Orleans and yeah. everybody knows everybody. So it's like, wow, that's great that we had we got to actually make that happen. Same thing with Barb Johnson and Kay Murphy. I mean, these are people that, you know, a lot of us have read for a long time. And it's like, hey, we can you know, I think it's interesting when you come to think of yourself like, all right, we're we're all young adults. We're not in college anymore. You know, we're all in our 30s. We're, we can kind of come to them as peers in a way, yeah. which it's it kind of requires a shift of thinking because I think for so long, at least for me, especially when it's, you know, someone who 
has maybe taught me or who has been really influential in my work, I kind of party kind of always feels a little bit like the student. Yeah. But they don't view it that way, which is really flattering and really wonderful. It's It's been really great that we've been able to show so many people, showcase so many people that kind of were our pie in the sky sort of thing. No, I think that's awesome. Yeah. You know, like that, that's, that's what you want, right? Yeah. It's just blown up in, in so many ways that we weren't really expecting. I think that and what's nice about it is every month, and I know you've been a few times, so maybe you've seen it too. It's like we do have a lot of regulars that yeah. come back each month and people that I've come to know by name and a lot of them who will sign up for the open mic pretty regularly. So I can tell that it's, it's you know, it's a place for them to share their work too, which is nice. Um, not everybody has a writing community or a writing group or something like that, or maybe you're not in classes. And Jessica also runs the New Orleans Writers Workshop, and I'll let her talk to you about that because I'm sure she'll want to. But, you know, some of her students have come, and it's just it's nice to see that we can provide that community for people who maybe might not have it in other ways or who just want to pursue that part yeah. even more. No, I can see that. Uh, you do some writing outside of poetry as well for uh, publications like Pelican Bomb yes. and Room 220. Yes. Uh, tell me a little bit about your interests there and some pieces you've written recently. Yeah, sure. Um Pelican Bomb is great. I've had a wonderful, long relationship writing for them. Um, that kind of, you know, came out of the bridge of art and, and writing in my life. I was working at the New Orleans Museum of Art. Um, I was the editor of publications there for um, over five years. And, um, you know, kind of at the same time, or right when I was starting over there, they were like, hey, they were starting this blog, and I kind of heard about it through our curator of contemporary art at the time. And um, she's like, yeah, they're looking for writers. You know, if you're interested, you should reach out. And I was like, yeah, I think that would be really fun. And so I write mostly art reviews, like short little critics picks sort of thing. Um, I've done a couple of interviews for them as well. One with Lindsay Phillips, who is a short um, filmmaker. And most recently, I published like a longer essay um, piece for them that kind of came out of this experience of me visiting a psychic after my mom died, yeah. which was something that I talked about with Charlie, who's the editor over there, who's fantastic. And, um, you know, I knew that they were kind of running this series on mental health and, you know, sort of ways of maybe self-care, I guess. That phrase kind of gets thrown around a lot. But yeah. I just thought it would be different for me. I'm not... You know, I haven't really written a lot of personal essays. I mostly write poetry, but I've been kind of thinking about the ways that I write lately and, and, and what form works for me for what I'm trying to say. It's a lot, you know, to kind of figure out, but they are so wonderful in that, yeah, they I, I've been able to publish a few things with them. And then Room 220 has been also great. Nate Martin, who, you know, kind of was, he was the first editor over there, and I wrote quite a few pieces for them, but mostly literary review type of things yeah. if it was like hey I, I actually reviewed carolyn hembry who was one of our uh featured readers at dogfish i reviewed one of her books poetry a few years ago which is great i've been also lucky to review books by like my old professors yeah. which is also fantastic i mean it's such a cool little i mean the communities here arts and literature they're they can be kind of insular but it, it's 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 nice it's like it's easy to reach out to people it's easy to make those things happen and yeah, it's been a really wonderful experience. I love it a lot. As we're running short on time, I was yeah. wondering if you could read a poem for us. Oh, sure. I'm going to read something that I'm kind of still working on. <laughs> August repeated. The rain comes back every year to the surprise of no one. It batters our backs, heads, rattles our window bones. It asks, really begs, 
Haven't you moved around that skull enough today? The rain finally knocked that dead bird hanging off my roof. The pigeon had been up there for a year or more, wings flitting. There was a time a family of birds got stuck in the attic. Maybe that guy was trying to get them and got splintered. I just wait for the rain, which comes back every year, competing for shrieks, jealous of our souls this whole time, so it sneaks through skin's creases, tries a new tune. This place is forgiving and unforgiving, always reminding you of the gutters you didn't clean or the will you didn't write, the choke of the heart. When are you supposed to write a will anyway? My mama knew she was going to die the moment she was born. First breath, first bottle. She never had a will to will. The rain comes every year, hand open, exposes its edges. Yes, of course the rain has edges, grinning green. This is standard practice. Give it up, it says. One time I let it in, opened myself up like a sponge, starfish belly, said have at it. I'm done. Can we get it right this time? Why don't I own a real rain jacket anyway? My mama never owned one, or a real coat or suit or anything. Of course, that didn't mean she wasn't real. I remember holding her hand, and never once did it turn to feathers. When it rained, she stayed inside her bedroom, washed in TV glow. Once it rained so bad, the kitchen flooded. But she wasn't there that day, don't know where she was. Sometimes I am the bird, watching the world upside down. People stop and ask what I am, hanging there. The rain will move through you if you don't resist so much. And it's true. Hollow your bones. Pretend it's the ocean. Pretend you are swimming but not, because how can the water swim in itself? Pretend you are the bird. Open your cracked beak and spit. Taylor, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's great. <laughs> that was author Taylor Murrow, one of the organizers for the Dogfish Reading Series. Up next, we'll be joined by educator and author Jessica Kennison, who came up with the idea for Dogfish and hosts it monthly in her home. Hi, and welcome to the Writers Forum. Today, I am talking with Jessica Kennison. Uh, very happy to have her here. How are you doing today, Jessica? Doing well, thank you. How are you? I am great. So I've interviewed everybody else at this point, and you are the, the final interview in the series on the Dogfish reading series, and you, in fact, started the series, right? Yes, I did. February 2015, we started back when I was working at the Loyola Writing Institute, and we wanted to have a place for our students to see their first reading in many cases. Also, when I bought my house, I wanted to have a space for the community and for writing to flourish. So it was my opportunity. To do that. That's mm -hmm. cool. And the house is very cool itself. Thank like you. It, was, it was a former bakery at one point, right? Yeah. So it was the bakery for the St. Rock neighborhood. You know how each neighborhood in New Orleans had a bakery that made the bread for everybody yeah. every day? My house was that bakery for St. Rock from about, I, I think, the late 1800s to about the mid 1970s. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it was pretty cool when I bought the house. Um, some of the guys who came and helped me work on different things, they remembered coming with their mothers when they were kids. Oh, cool. So that was neat. They told me a little bit more about it. Was this how you envisioned it initially, like, like how it's kind of turned out to be? Or what were your kind of like initial implementations for that? Well, so a, a couple things. I am a little bit of a shy person sometimes, yeah. especially in a big group situation. So readings were always tough for me. And I've been writing since I was 15. So I've had to go to a lot of readings <laughs> and be a part of a lot of group dynamics like that. And I noticed that um, some of them aren't that warm. Or you just have some cheap wine in a box somewhere and it's a a room with white walls and you just listen and then go home. Yeah. And it doesn't leave a lot of room for people to hang out and feel like they're a part of it. 
if they're not the reader, yeah. right? So I really paid attention to a reading series that I went to and parties I went to, especially in graduate school in Pittsburgh. I met a lot of great reading hosts in Pittsburgh. So Sherry Flick was a woman I met there, and she used to run the Gist Street reading series in Pittsburgh, which ran for 10 years and had all kinds of famous writers in a huge loft, much bigger than mine, but I always thought of that loft. Yeah. And I was too late to go to any of them. They were already done by the time I got there. But I was always hearing about it, and I went to lots of parties in that space. And I thought, oh, you know what's great about this? It's in someone's house, and they love this house, and they make you love it. Yeah. And they make you be a part of it. And I remember with that one, they had a beer in the bathtub, and that was their thing, you know? <laughs> and so for us, we knew we wanted to have food. We knew we wanted to have a lot of booze and and water and whatever to make you comfortable and also to make sure that everybody's greeted when they walk in the door and everybody knows that we're happy that they are there, not just the reader, not just, you know, the kind of names on the, the flyer, right? Yeah. And so I, I took all that and kind of put it together. And and really, Kate has been huge because she's good at social media and I'm, I'm a Luddite. Like, I can hardly <laughs> use my phone. And so she's really brought a lot of people together. Also, she, she and Alex are connected to the com- comedy community. They brought in those storytellers, and Taylor is a great art reviewer. She was already connected to Antenna and the Pelican Bomb and all those guys, and I had been away at graduate school, so bringing together my close friends to kind of pull at their networks was really helpful, and we just knew we wanted to have a party more than a formal reading, so that's kind of how it evolved over time. No, I think that's great, and I love that kind of like Captain Planet mentality of like come together, bring your individual corners, and let's see what we can do. Yeah. Um, and you bring that to the kind of the, the reading schedule as well. I mean, you've had everybody from like experimental poets to uh, John Pope giving kind of a monologue on, you know, obituaries to, you know, uh, Tank from Tank and the Bangers, which is like, it's really great to see like the space kind of transform each month into that. Yeah, I, th- I think that's another thing that's good about having four people putting on an event instead of just me. Yeah. So it's been really neat to to learn about all these writers I didn't even know were here. That's great, yeah. Um, and also think about what is writing. I teach writing to homeless folks, to people in jail, to uh, just adults in the community who have full-time jobs and come to our classes at night. I've taught writing all over the place, and the common denominator there is trying to figure out, you know, what is my story of who I am and why I am. Yeah. And stories are found everywhere. Like John Pope really exhibited that last month, you know, talking about how he got to know people throughout their lives so he could write about them in death. Yeah. I thought that was so great. Also, he was just hilarious. But <laughs> I, I really like pushing the boundaries of what a reading is yeah. and what writing is. You know, it's, it's just storytelling, and that's really inherent to our community, I think. You mentioned you teach writing for the New Orleans Writers Workshop. Yes. As well as at Project Lazarus. Mm-hmm. Uh, t- tell me a little bit about those experiences. Well, uh, so again, a lot of what I'm currently doing came from my experience in Pittsburgh. Yeah. I taught, uh, kept my fellowship in graduate school at my MFA program was teaching primarily men who were incarcerated in the Allegheny County Jail. So for two years, I went to jail, you know, three days a week for two hours a day. Yeah. And that was huge for me. Because they really pushed my limits. And again, I'm, I was a little bit of a shy writer type, you know. So they were like, well, who are you to do this, you know? <laughs> and so they really 
brought me out of my shell and also taught me what writing could do. Because, yeah. you know, those guys were still writing letters that mattered, right, yeah, yeah. By, by hand. Also, they had stories to tell that were some of the most amazing stories I've ever heard. And so from there, I came home and I started at Project Lazarus, which is a transitional housing facility mm-hmm. for people living with HIV and primarily people from com- coming from homeless situations. So they come and they live with us for up to two years. And um, my role there was to do all the grant stuff, like operations side of things. But I also said, hey, I'll only take this job if I can bring this curriculum that I taught in Allegheny County Jail to Project Lazarus. And my boss at the time, who became a great mentor to me, this is about five years ago, he said, sure, do it. And so I taught creative writing, but we also brought in HIV 101 and life skills and philosophy and all kinds of things. Because I had this idea that nobody wants to learn about HIV 101 or financial literacy or, you know, boring stuff that they need to know if they don't have a reason for living, right? So philosophy and creative writing and religious studies and all the other classes we've tried that are like on the liberal arts side, they're kind of giving you that idea of like, who am I and why am I? Yeah. And then the New Orleans Writers Workshop came from the Loyola Writing Institute. When I, again, when I came home from Pittsburgh, my former professor at Loyola, Christopher Chambers, said, come teach for me at the Loyola Writing Institute. We're doing this cool thing that you'd like. Um, And I did. It was... um, Writing classes for community members, you don't have to have any experience, and they're not expensive, and they're after work hours, right? And so we taught classes, and I did that for a year and a half maybe, and then he moved away and said, will you take this over for me? So I was doing Project Lazarus and the Loyola Writing Institute. And then over time, Loyola Writing Institute was just growing and growing, and I wasn't really working at Loyola. I was downtown at Project Lazarus, so it became hard to manage inside of a big system. Yeah. So last December, three other teachers and I left and started the New Orleans Writers Workshop together. So we're technically business owners, which we still can't believe. Uh, so it's Anya Groner, who's a local poet and nonfiction writer. Tom Andes, who's a great fiction writer, who does the fiction programming at Bloodjet Reading Series. And then Allison Alsup, who's also a fiction writer, who writes all kinds of wonderful things, including bar guides and stuff. So we've been running this, and it's going well, and we have classes all over the city. So our idea is we want to make sure there's a class near you somewhere. Yeah. Uh, we have classes at Antenna on St. Claude, at NOCA. Uh, we did some classes at the Healing Center. We have classes at New Orleans Museum of Art, Ogden Museum. We have uh, classes at a real estate agency on, yeah. on Ferret. We even have classes on the North Shore at the Southern Hotel. That's really great. So, um, And we have classes that are nine weeks, four weeks, two day, and one day on the weekend. So the idea is no matter what your schedule is like, who you are, you should be able to do something. Um, to kind of pivot a bit, I do want to talk about uh, your own writing. Yeah. Uh, you do mainly fiction? Uh, well, yeah. Historically, I've done mainly fiction. Yeah, but you also uh, have written plays. You've written poetry, nonfiction yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. Um Tell me what you're most interested in. Which which medium do you prefer, honestly? Well, so I started as a kid at uh, the Clarion Ledger in Mississippi. Yeah. Uh, in Jackson, where I'm from, I won a column contest. And then I had a, a weekly column in oh, the Clarion wow. Ledger, um, which seems so silly now. I can't believe anybody read that. Um, <laughs> what was the name of your column? Uh, I don't know. Views from junior high or something. <laughs> I forget. It was something like that. It was something very silly. You know, and I thought it was so important then. I was writing about John Keats and all that kind yeah. of stuff. And then from there, I got a, a job at the civil rights newspaper called the Jackson Free Press okay. there. And that was really formative for me. I really 
started to see the world as bigger than just, again, my high school or junior high or being a kid. Yeah. I got to go and ride with the, the second Freedom Riders who were riding through Mississippi for immigrant populations and to raise awareness of what they were going through. I got to meet a lot of civil rights leaders yeah. and that kind of stuff. And my, my boss really pushed me to, to learn, even though I was scared and young. And so I actually came here to study journalism at Loyola. Ah. And then Katrina hit my sophomore year. And the journalism department was sort of flailing when I got home. So then I moved over and started studying with John Biganay and Christopher Chambers at Loyola. And so that's where the playwriting and the fiction came in because yeah. I got into flash fiction because Chris was in it. And I think I got into playwriting because John Biganay was like, try this, you yeah. know. And then I went to graduate school on the strength of those flash fiction pieces I used to write. Uh, and then there I wrote a whole flash fiction uh, experimental novel yeah. that I'm still working on some. And then now I've gotten into nonfiction. Interesting. I think just the, the what's going on in the world has really made me examine myself and think about, okay, where what am I not looking at about myself? Yeah. And one of those things is being from Mississippi. Yeah. I think I always, I love Gabriela Garcia Marquez, like magical realism, and I, I love the romantic poets, and I love people from all over other places. Right. Yeah. And I never really looked at Eudora Welty and Richard Ford and all those Mississippi writers who now I realize these are my people. Yeah. And, you know, it took me over 30 years to figure that out. <laughs> and I, I feel like I, I've got to make up for lost time. Yeah. And so I've been writing a lot of nonfiction about what it means to be a Southerner in 2017 yeah. and um, what I can do to build a positive community for everyone around me. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I know you've got a a piece that you want to share as well, if you wouldn't mind reading that for us. Sure, I'd love to. Thank you so much for inviting me to read. I Ain't Whistling Dixie. I ain't whistling Dixie, although I love Mississippi's kudzu hills and steak and gravy and butter and music, my mother and father and grandmother, my aunts and uncles and cousins. Have you seen the news lately? It's bad. It's badder than having no God, no Charlie Daniels, no Bud Light, no Bible, no Florabama, not even nothing to compare ourselves to, no other selves to make less. It's even worse than having no friends, no belief system, no Dixie, no ground to stand on on the banks of the Mississippi, the Pearl, the Bogachetta, Wolf Flake, the Pontchartrain, not even on the Ross Barnett Reservoir right there in the heart of Dixieland. Why are we holding on to Dixie, a gang melody of a bygone time that doesn't hold water? We're all still trying to hum a tune we can't even remember the words to. Maybe we never knew them, a melody no one wrote and no one remembers hearing firsthand. Dixie, oh my Dixie, my corner of the world to hold and protect. When I was a child, I thought Dixie was heaven, literally. The goal in life, the promised land, as in, we'll meet again in Dixie by and by. Some say it refers to the Mason-Dixon line, some the Dix bill, which was a 10 in Louisiana, and others, and this always sounded right to me, said it referred to a farm in Long Island owned by a man named Dixie who took in runaway slaves. If I could just get to Dixie's land was how the original longing work song might have gone. The news is worse than having no motorboat, no anchor, no rudder, not even one, no, not one person to hold your sweaty, palmed hand out on the water when the moon's just so and it's late and everyone's drunk and flushed and happy. 
Out there, you're thinking of the screened-in warmth of sleeping it off on the porch under the godlike ceiling fans, while the Dixie moon draws shadows on the walls like graffiti. You, that late and that full and that warm, just might could take on the whole world. But why would you if you can live on this porch in Mississippi? Bare feet on wood and dirt and rock, for God's sake. Ice, ice, ice. Baby, the nearest thing to Dixie for me was my ex-boyfriend. He liked to tell people I'm from Mississippi. He liked to write songs about how he fell in love with a Mississippi girl who's Mississippi healthy and full of spit and vinegar and sawdust. A direct descendant of Highway 49 and Freedom Summer and pig pen keepers and gamblers and cowboys. I was born in 1986 and raised on the Almond Brothers, went to Borders and Starbucks after prep school. Dixie is a tune I hardly knew. It was a dog's name, a beer, when Dixie, where we got our groceries. My ex-boyfriend came up in New York, and boy, did I love him. He was my Dixie, my butter, my bread, my story that I wanted to tell every person I met all over the world, every place I went. Oh, look away, just take me to my Dixie. I would have gladly waved his flag forever. I would have been first in line for a bumper sticker if they had existed. He introduced me as his Dixie darling, his Mississippi coin, his record on repeat. I'm no Dixie, I'd say. I'm not whistling Dixie. He knew that, he'd assure me, and I believed him. I kept on holding on to the idea that I was native to him and him alone, like some people's Dixie, he was my history, the only thing of truth and belonging I could get behind. He made me feel like I knew something of this world and could hold it just like those hot nights and warm hands. I held on to our relationship, my Dixie, my idea of some place I'm from that I can't even remember or never knew so long and so hard that it exploded in my hands, all over me, all over him, and all over the people around us. I kept on waving the flag with no hands, kept waving it until it too caught fire and turned the whole place to ashes. Thank you so much for sharing that. Thank um, you. Is that going to be part of uh, an essay standalone or are you going to include it in a larger work? Uh, I'm not sure yet. Yeah. I've been writing um, a number of sort of poetic rant essays lately yeah. for the fun of it, I think. Um, and also in the style of uh, Mary Rufel's My Private Property, I just read that for the second time. Um, and it just really inspired me to think about, again, who I am, where I'm from, and what are like the symbols of that? Yeah. And how do they play out every day? And do I even know what they mean? Right. And so I, I do see that some of these could be connected. Um, I've been writing a lot about the Almond Brothers since Greg Almond died. Yeah. He was a big part of my childhood <laughs> and, uh, and a big part of the way I saw men and the and how uh, we should talk about love, which is basically love is sadness, <laughs> the blues. Um, so I think they will be connected in the end. I have sent a few out to, to journals like Brevity and, and stuff like that just to see how they play in the world outside of here. Yeah. Because I think that's always a struggle writing about the South. In Pittsburgh, when I wrote anything related to Katrina or the South, everybody was like, wow, you know, so different than anything I know. Yeah. And here, people will press you, right? It's true. And and then, like, what are the ideas people outside of here have about us that maybe would connect to a piece like this and contradict or confirm in a way I don't want to or mm -hmm. something? 
And then how do people view it here? So I've been kind of sending it out for now and then um, collecting them and just putting them in a file to see yeah. and not worrying too much about what happens in the end. Because I did that with my novel and I think it it eventually made me just put it in a drawer because I was so... Disheartened by just the process? Well, or? just uh, stressed about the idea of what it will be and what it will become. Yeah. Because I, I have a tendency to be more of a, an experimental writer and... The ex experimentation is the fun of it. Yeah. Right? Lately, I've been going to in all these improv concerts in town. I don't know if you've been to the sidebar. Mm -hmm. um, and the music box does some stuff. And the high host doing an improv show on Tuesday nights or, I don't know, Monday nights, I think. Um, and it's all just like these great musicians get up there and they just see what happens. Yeah. And so that's what I've been trying to do in my work and be, in, be inspired and be a part of a community of people who are just trying things. Yeah. And remembering why writing is fun, too. That's hard. That's really hard. Yeah. Um, I, I Yeah, just thinking about that, because it feels like if you're a writer today, you have to have a plan yeah. and be thinking constantly ahead and how you're going to be framed, not just within your own mind, but when everybody, you know, theoretically that looks at your work, right? Right. And that's so difficult. And like, how are you going to sell it, too? You know, because there's always that kind of like bottom line going with it, too. So that, that, that's great to hear you're finding the space for yourself. Where you're just like, let it go. We'll figure it out as we go along and, just, you know, make it happen. Um, I think that's great. If you could pick anyone, living or dead, to come read at a dogfish event, who would you choose? Oh, I love this question. Um, you know, I'll tell you that I've had a lot of people who would have been my pick already read, which really? has been huge. Um, Sam Ligon is probably my favorite living writer, I would say, and yeah. he read last year. Uh, he lives in Spokane, Washington. Roger Kamenetz was always one of my heroes uh, as a teenager. Uh, Andy Young, local poet, was huge for me. So many great people who we've had so far. But, okay, future thinking. So I guess I would have to say, since I'm on this Mississippi kick, I would like Cassandra Wilson, the jazz singer, mm. to sing and tell us a little bit about how she sees storytelling in her songs. Oh, wow. And then follow up with a Richard Ford reading. Oh, that'd be which great. Which would be so good. Yes. <laughs> uh, and you could even read from his new memoir, which is about being an only child growing up in Mississippi. So I think that would be a cool combination. I also think they, Richard Ford's a lot older than Cassandra Wilson. Yeah. And so it would be neat to have them and see what their experiences of growing up in Jackson were, were and how different they were from one another. That'd be a really interesting conversation. And like a coming home reading. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Um, okay. So one day I'm going to try to play the Jackson card and see what you get up down here. <laughs> um, but yeah, that would be huge for me. What are you reading right now? Okay, so uh, I'm pretty transparent when I'm obsessed with things. So yes. uh, I've been reading all of Richard Ford's books. Okay. So I saw him at the Mississippi Book Festival, which I highly recommend. I've been started going in the last few years. Okay. I think it's always in August and it's wonderful all kinds of great writers and, and new orleans folks too yeah so i started with the between us book because um, i'm an only child who grew up in the same place as him you know 50 60 years later so that got me started and then i started or then i went to the last in the sports writer that, like yeah, i guess yeah. it's not a trilogy anymore because there's a fourth one the frank uh frank Baum. yeah Bascot. Bascot. there we go yeah and uh so the most recent one was about being a 70 year old Man, and just, I mean, all the books are seem to be about just what it's like to be alive. Yeah. And so I started with the last one, and now I'm on the sports writer. I'm almost done with that, and then I've got two more in the middle. So I'm really excited about that. I have a subscription to Wave Books, okay. which I also highly recommend. It's a poetry publisher primarily. So I just read Taim Bajess's Olio. 
which I think won the Pulitzer Prize. I think so, yeah, yeah. Um, and I feel so fortunate because I got to interview him when I was in graduate school in Pittsburgh because yeah. his first book was about lead belly. And so because I was from Mississippi, I got to be the one to interview him. And so I've been following his career closely and getting to hear firsthand what these books are about and the development of them. So I've been reading a lot of poetry from Wave, but that was the most recent one. Oh, great. That's good. I like that. What are some things happening for dogfish in, you know, late December 2018 that people can be looking forward to? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Dogfish, we have our December reading coming up, uh, which is our annual holiday party. The idea of it is it's a time for us just to be commune together. We don't have an outside author coming particularly. We read what we've been working on, and then we have the open mic as usual, and then we party. And we make our special food and our special drinks and cocktails. And it's, it's more of a party. We've got decorations and you know, all that stuff. And we, we just really come together as a community more than anything. And then actually we're meeting tomorrow to lock down our 2018 readers. I know we'll have Cheryl St. Germain next October. Who's in New Orleans or well, she's from New Orleans and uh, is a well-known Louisiana writer and translator um, who will have a new book out by then from Autumn House Press. Fantastic. And um, we'll have Toy Derricott late next year also, who is just a world-renowned poet. Luckily, she has a friend who lives here, which I found out this year because she showed up at a dogfish reading. And I said, you're Toy Derricott. (laughs) And she said, wow, you know who I am? I'm like, yes. I think uh, more poets should have, you know, like football player receptions. You know, like they're they're celebrities to me. (laughs) Um, So be really happy to have her and a whole host of, of new people. We haven't quite figured out the order of things, yeah. but um, I think we definitely hope to shake things up. We want to uh, really be sure that everybody who walks in dog f- to Dogfish who wants to read and wants to put work into the world can, yeah. one way or another. So that's something we've been talking about a whole lot. And yeah, I, I think in recent months I got a little bit tired I was busy with work, and I had some hard stuff happen at work, as happens when you're working with people with substance use issues and stuff. And the house was, I had to fix all kinds of things with the house, and just one thing after another for a little while. And I I went to Kate and Alex and Taylor, and I said, what are we doing this for? I'm exhausted. And remind me why we're doing this, because I'm not sure if I'm in it anymore. My heart might not be in it. And they said... We're going to tell you what you told us, which is we're here to build a community and we're here to be in it together. So we're going to step up and help you, yeah. um, you know, with whatever house thing I was worried about yeah, or whatever. Yeah. And um, they really did. And our, our John Pope event was just so warm and lovely. And I just remembered every person who walked in the door was like, I'm so happy to be here. I've been looking forward to this all month. And uh, Kate and Taylor and Alex really stepped up and helped me like get the folks out the door early so I can go to bed early and, <laughs> and which doesn't always matter but I was they knew I was feeling tired yeah and I just remembered why I'm doing it why I have these great friends that that help me put this together and uh, I wouldn't trade it for anything and I, I'm really looking forward to 2018 now okay. um, because of those guys and because of the people who come because they're also warm and open and good and care about writing like where else can you sit with 50 people? once a month at least, and great to just dork out about writing, you yeah. know, and, and, and tell people your fears about your own writing and, you know, confusion maybe, or ask the real questions that maybe in academia you want to hide that you don't know the yeah. answer to, right? <laughs> and, and I just remembered why I want to do this, and I can't wait to do it next year. 
Yeah, that's great. We're looking forward to it then. Thank you. Um, And looking forward to the reading. Jessica, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you so much for your time. And thanks for all the work you do in the, the writing community. It's not often you have a space to talk just straight about writing for 30 minutes. I feel so fortunate. (laughs) Best lunch hour ever. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. That was Jessica Kinnison, educator and author. And before that was Taylor Murrow, both founders and organizers behind the Dogfish Reading Series. If you're listening on Thursday, December 14th, they'll be holding their annual holiday party tonight starting at 7 p.m. For more information on that, check out their website, dogfishneworleans.com, or follow them on Facebook. And that's our show. You've been listening to the Writers' Forum on WRBH. You can catch us every week at 3 p.m. on Thursdays and at 8.30 a.m. on Sundays. All of our interviews are archived on WRBH's SoundCloud page, which can be found at soundcloud.com, WRBH Reading Radio, as well as on iTunes and Google Play. I'm David Benedetto. Until next time.